0: Hello, I'm Stan Stalniker coming at you from Emerald City Hub Culture's virtual metropolis on the internet. Joining us for another episode of the Hub Culture Chronicles is a really interesting person, Miss Charlie Hodgkiss, who works with the National Tropical Botanical Gardens in Hawaii. Charlie is a rare plant specialist and she's a botanist, and she's working on a lot of conservation issues that are relatively interesting in the field of invasive species and rare plants. Charlie, welcome to our podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Stan.
0: Hey, I'm so excited to talk to you today, Charlie, about a kind of interesting area that we probably don't think a lot about, but it's really invasive species and rare plants. And in the context of our Davos Agenda discussions happening throughout January, I think this is a really interesting topic because it fits into climate change and just the world at large, the natural world at large. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at NTPG?
1: So my role here at the National Tropical Botanical Garden, my first focus is our Fern Propagation Lab where I help propagate rare endemic Native Hawaiian ferns from spore and occasionally also from rhizome cutting, which is really close to my heart. Ferns are so special. And then I also work in our conservation nursery. So I do propagation from seed plants and care for those plants until they're ready to go back out into the wild to restore the native ecosystems.
0: That's so exciting. So you spend a lot of time with plants, a lot of time with ferns. And I know that on walks that I've done with you here in Kauai, uh, you've been amazing at pointing out what is an invasive species versus what are native species. Can you talk a little bit about how human encroachment or human development and essentially climate change are changing the way that plants engage with the land that they're on? Like Invasive species are a big issue, right?
1: They're a huge issue. And a lot of times people don't really understand how something can be invasive because occasionally invasive plants get to places on their own without human aid. But most of them do come through humans. Either they sneak on seeds or spores in a batch of plants that are being shipped to fill a fruit orchard, or to be sold at a flower shop. Invasive species come in through all sorts of means, on accident or on purpose, and once they're here and they procreate, they create like a mass amount of problems. They Not only do they compete with native species for space and resources, But they can also change the soil chemistry and in the long-term effects can completely change the ecosystem and you see that happening all over the world in every type of ecosystem
0: and do you find that with the work you're doing are you seeing changes beyond that relative to climate change where because of the work that or sorry not so much the work but the effects of climate adaptation and climate change that the land itself is becoming more hospitable or less hospitable To certain things? Do you feel like that's immediately obvious or is it a much longer process?
1: It's not always immediately obvious, but it is something that we think of all the time in my line of work. Like we grow these native endangered species here in our nursery, and when we're choosing where to outplant them back into the wild, sometimes their former habitat, where they've grown historically for thousands of years, evolved in that spot. Climate change has made it so that spot is no longer longer habitable for some of those species. And so we now need to look, you know, higher in elevation or farther inland and choose spots where they will survive and can procreate.
0: So can we, can we geek out for a second on plants? Like let's I know see. you are a total, <laughs> um, a fiction auto of plants. What are some of the rarest plants that you're working with? And let's talk about this idea of endemic extinction because It seems to me from our conversations that we've had in the past, that there is a little bit of a plant crisis happening, not just in Hawaii, but in other places with these rare plants.
1: Oh, this is my favorite subject. There's a massive plant crisis happening. There's a massive extinction happening, which I'm sure people have heard from other sources. And one reason that it's happening so badly to plants is because they're often overlooked. A lot of the endangered threatened species that you hear about on TV or in the media are things like characteristic megafauna, like tigers or cute birds. And, and those things are important too. But what a lot of people don't understand is that the plants go hand in hand. Like Those things aren't going to survive when their native ecosystems are changing so drastically. So some of the plants that I work with at work, in fact, there's one plant that we work with here at the NTBG that is actually extinct in the wild. All the wild plants are gone. And that's brigamia and Cygnus. They also call it cabbage on a stick. It's a very cool Hawaiian endemic plant and it is extinct in the wild. And the only reason that there's any left in the wild is because of conservation efforts that we do here to have them outplanted. But one other important thing beyond outplanting is just keeping that species alive in ex-situ conservation, which means just having multiple of them with different genetics and continuing to propagate them here so that we can hang on to them, even if they're not going to be existing in the wild anymore. To answer the question about what are some plants that I worked directly with that are really rare, one of them is my favorite. And it's Probably the most rare fern on Kauai. It's endemic just to our island here on Kauai. It doesn't grow on any of the other islands. And it is Doriopteris angelica. The Hawaiian name for it is Eva Eva, named after the bird. It's a fern. It's terrestrial. It doesn't look like other ferns. Go ahead and Google it. It is just a beautiful frond. And there's probably 50 or less plants left in the wild. And I have probably over 200 in my lab. So it just... It feels crazy to have more of something here in my cold, sterile lab environment than exist out in the world where they should be.
0: How fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about, I know ferns are kind of your thing. Walk us through the life of a fern.
1: So ferns are old world plants. They were around before there was plants with flowers. And to make it really basic, essentially ferns grow from spores, so the They Instead of creating a flower, they're going to create spores on the back of their frond or in a spike form sometimes, and those will mature and dry out, and they'll either be spread by wind or they'll fall to the ground or some ancient friends, you know, like horsetails and stuff, other pteridophytes, they will spread through water. And then when those spores reach a happy place, they turn into gametophytes, which are these cute, teeny, tiny little heart-shaped green organisms and then those procreate together some of them are hermaphroditic they're male and female or sometimes they're separate and then those grow teeny tiny little sporophytes or sporlings, and it all starts over again so they don't need a pollinator which is interesting
0: so this is a very long cycle that's with plants that have existed on the planet for hundreds of thousands or even millions of years. And as you say, they don't have pollinators, so they have a way of reproducing themselves without any yeah. outside
1: Yeah, it's one thing that if I could like get a wish from a genie, I'd love to go back to old earth before there were ever flowers and all the plants were terratophytes. Oh my gosh.
0: <laughs> so in a way you're kind of saving Jurassic Park.
1: Yeah, definitely. We are saving really old world plants that without us would be gone. And, and a lot of that is because of invasive species that are flowering plants, angiosperms, and they're so attractive to pollinators. And so they're spread so easily, whereas these guys, they don't get help from anything else.
0: So what do you think is the bigger threat for these old world plants? Is it the invasive nature of pollinators that are essentially taking over, Or is it climate change? Could you weigh one over the other as being, because I know a lot of ferns need a kind of moist, damp, foggy, environment compared to like, say a hotter, drier environment, right? I've seen, or even around the island, there are areas of the island where you see massive fern locations and they seem to be drying out. Is that just.
1: I would say climate change is probably the number one factor in the threat of all wild species on Earth, not just plants. I think that is the number one issue right now. And if we don't start acting on it now, there really is no hope for conservation, because if we can't reverse the effects of climate change, there's no point to what I'm doing here. But on the other hand, directly affecting ferns, I would say, is invasive species. Yes, you find more ferns in wet, moist areas, but there are species that grow in dry, hot places or that can withstand that. But invasive species, not just invasive plants, but invasive ungulates, that's animals with hooves, they cause a lot of damage and it's hard for ferns to withstand that.
0: That's so interesting because it is a sort of a plant and animal attack on all sides, right? Yeah. Let's talk about the, the role of climate change a little bit. So the UNFCCC has proposed that the planet needs to warm less than 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is about 3 to 4 degrees Fahrenheit, um, in order for us to uh, avoid the worst effects of climate change. But I get the sense that, especially in the world of ferns and some of these uh, other rare plants, that a 3 to 4 degree Fahrenheit change in temperature might actually be somewhat devastating. Is, Is it that sensitive? Like, what is the range of temperature change that you think um, actually affects these plants and their ability to survive?
1: So that's a multifaceted question and definitely is somewhat understudied, especially with some of the fern species that I work with. A lot of the fern species I work with have never been propagated before, are incredibly understudied. We know so little about them to begin with that we don't know the extent of their temperature range. For, for example, I keep my lab here at 61, 62 degrees Fahrenheit because they grow much better at a cold temperature and it also helps with the growth of mold and algae in here. We don't want that. But then I take them out and I put them in a greenhouse and I harden them off because they will be facing warmer temperatures when they're outplanted back into the wild. So I think that they can withstand a decent change in temperature, but... We really won't know the effects until it gets to that point or we do big studies on it, which isn't happening right now with the Hawaiian ferns, at least.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately, we're talking about average temperatures and on either side of that, there can be temperature extremes, right? So one hot week at 20 degrees above the range can be enough to kill a plant and the same, I guess, on, on colder tides. When we think about these ferns, can you tell me how we could be thinking as a society about integrating these ferns more into economic ways for us to have a reason to see them succeed? For instance, I'm thinking about eating them in in particular. I don't think that many people know that some ferns are edible. And I've seen examples here in Hawaii of people eating fern. And It seems to be a more local tradition, obviously people who know what ferns are edible and what are not. And then potentially even the medicinal benefits, there's talk about ferns being able to do some pretty magical things on the medical front. Can you dive us a little bit into how you see ferns helping in those ways? So those
1: are, I'm not super into the money-making aspect of plants. So it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about, but there are a lot of edible ferns. Um, None of my native Hawaiian ferns are that I know of. There is a fern species. People call it pahole. I forget the actual botanical name, but that grows wild here in Hawaii. It might be indigenous. I'm not sure it's invasive, but it's a delicious treat. On the West Coast in North America, there's multiple native fern species that you can forage for sustainably that are edible and delicious and I love to encourage people to branch out and forage for their own foods if they are doing so in a sustainable method. It's one thing I really miss about living on the west coast and then I think that there's so much unknown medicinal benefits from especially from rare plants that we don't know a lot about and I think that's very exciting and I hope that through some of my work we can find out things that plants can do for us, for our benefit. But I'm mostly working for the plants and their benefit right now. One thing that I think would be cool and I think would help encourage especially young people to get interested is I would love to start making grow your own fern kits. Because so many people don't understand how to propagate from spore and it's not as hard as it sounds. So I think that's something I'd like to do in the near future is make these kits and send them out to schools where kids can use them for science fair projects or STEM learning and and just get more kids interested in botany and, and being connected to nature.
0: Walk us through, how do you propagate a fern? When you're working in the lab and you're going about this process, how do you do it?
1: So if we're talking about spore propagation, which is my absolute favorite thing, you're gonna start, you can do this at home. I'm gonna give you instructions. Everyone go try this at home. You wanna find a fern, with fertile spores on the back. You can use a magnifying lens to check them. On most springs, they're gonna be a beautiful golden brown color when they're ready to collect. You can scrape them off or cut a whole frond off and put it in a paper envelope. Don't use plastic, it'll get moldy. Let it dry out for a couple of days in a closed paper envelope, and then get a clean workspace. I like to sterilize my workspace first. And then get a piece of paper, scrape those spores off the frond onto that piece of paper, and it's just going to be like dust. You want to be super careful to not breathe or you'll just blow all of it away. So that's been one thing that's been helpful about having to wear my COVID mask here at work is I don't accidentally blow any of my spores away. Um, And then you're going to, I do a sterilization process with my media, so you're going to grow it on top of soil or vermiculite works well. I do a mixture of both. I do a thin, thin layer of vermiculite at the bottom and then some native soil. And um, my sterilization
0: process,
1: I think it's like a mixture of metals and glass. Honestly, I don't even know, but it helps maintain moisture in the container. So you rinse that with potassium permanganate. You can even do like a light bleach solution. Just sterilize your substrates. You could even just do pour over with boiling water and then microwave it for a couple of minutes. It can be super easy. And that's
0: just to get rid of all the germy germs that could potentially hurt the plant.
1: Yeah, like mold and bacteria and stuff. You just want it to be as clean as possible. And then spread your spores over the top. You need like a teaspoon, spread them out evenly. Put a lid on it, you know, just use any Tupperware that has a little bit of room in the top so that once the gametophytes grow, those sporophytes have a couple of inches of room to grow and keep it moist, keep it under light, be patient. It takes a few months and before you know it, you'll see little green gametophytes forming and then soon you'll have baby ferns. It's really exciting.
0: (laughs) So you can grow your own ferns at home and do your part to help propagate the protection of rare and 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 other native species in the fern world. And if we had everybody growing ferns, I suppose that would do a lot to to just help keep these species alive and well. So how does it work then? How long does it take to grow a fern? Are ferns very slow growing plants compared to others?
1: It honestly depends on the species. I have some propagation trays in here that I'll sow them and I'll have borophytes within two months. Others, it takes three to six months. It's totally, variable and then and that tray of spores like you could sow one today and it could still be making baby spores in 2024 2025 they last a long time
0: and then like if you wanted to plant them outside um you would potentially do it much the way you would like a garden or other yeah. types of like garden vegetables
1: yeah once you got your sporophyte your your little baby fern You're going to transplant that as gently as possible to not disrupt the roots. I use tweezers at work, and then you you just slowly upsize it from pot to pot until it's big enough to plant into the ground and survive.
0: Great! So, how to make your own fern at home? I love it. Let's talk (laughs) for a minute. I'd I'd love to, with the time we have left, also kind of pivot on beyond, Um, and let's talk about orchids for a minute. And I'd love to. finish on mycelium and food forests, uh, which I know that you guys have been doing some work in those areas. So walk me through the world of orchids from your point of view.
1: Orchids are fascinating. They are the largest group of plants on the planet other than the Asteraceae group of flowering plants they're incredibly diverse. Like some, You think you know what orchids look like, and then you see a photo of some genus you've never heard of, and you wouldn't in a million years guess that it's an orchid. So they're just never-ending fun, new things to learn in the world of orchids. My boyfriend is the person who got me interested in orchids. When we were in college in Oregon, he used to find some cool native orchid species that I didn't even know existed. And he would take me out on like a treasure hunt to find it. And most people don't know that North America, the US and Canada are full of native endemic and rare orchids that you can go out and see easily. Just do a little bit of research, type in native orchids in whatever state you live in, you know, Wisconsin or Ohio, there are native orchids in every single state. And no, like so many people don't know that.
0: Are are orchids under the similar threat that we're seeing with things like ferns?
1: Oh, without a doubt. I, I mean, all plants are under threat right now, but and orchids even more so because they're so heavily collected. A lot of the reasons that we have a lot of endangered species of orchids is not just habitat loss, but because there was this huge movement at one point in time which is still going on around the world where people want to exploit them and go and collect them and sell them and make money off of them. And it's truly heartbreaking. We've had entire species populations of orchids wiped out from collectors.
0: Mm -hmm. And I suppose, is it more difficult or different process to to breed or to propagate orchids? Um, It depends on
1: the orchid, but it is a whole different animal. And that's something I hope to do later in my career. I would love to do some orchid propagation. They grow much, much slower than ferns for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, you put them on agar in a really sterile lab. A lot of them have mycorrhizal relationships that you can't replicate. And and therefore, a lot of, of the rarest and to me, the most interesting orchids are impossible to propagate.
0: So that makes it, um, it sounds like all the more important to maintain habitat protection for these orchids because they can't, it's not like you can take them to a lab and easily propagate them.
1: Without a doubt, habitat protection is the number one way for most terrestrial, like North American native orchids, as well as the ones here in Hawaii. All the orchids you see here in Hawaii, guaranteed, all the ones you've seen, none of them are native. We only have three native orchid species here and they're all really rare and hard to find, including one of those, there's only one plant left in the wild.
0: Wow. And there's no way to, like, wow, it's almost like, I suppose it, it, you can't really propagate it, so it's, is it really just down to that last little plant to
1: It, it move is. On? when it's gone, it, it's gone.
0: Yeah, that's very sad in its own way. Let's talk about mycelium. A lot of people, I feel like mycelium has become a kind of cause celeb with people like Paul Hawken and Paul Samets, talking about the impact that mycelium and mushroom and fungal networks have. Can you walk us through a little bit about how they play a role in maintaining forest health?
1: So I'm not an expert on this. I'm not a mycologist and we are learning so much every single day in the mycology world. That it's a relatively understudied world and people are really digging into that research right now. But it's just like mycelium is a combination of its ecosystem. What plants are there, what hardwoods, what shrubs, what mushrooms, and then what plants are using up stuff from that mycelium. It's like a communication network. They're sharing nutrients. Some people think that plants communicate through mycelium. It's an amazing, understudied, misunderstood thing that is vital to a lot of different ecosystems, especially like old growth forests and stuff. The mycelium there is it's been evolving for hundreds of thousands of years with that plant ecosystem and plant community. So it's vital.
0: One of the things that I've seen the NTPG is pioneering is the idea of a food forest and a food forest is a place where a kind of considerate approach to agriculture is being developed where a a life cycle of different crops are planted over time that result in a bunch of different crops together. So instead of a monoculture of agriculture, where you have fields and fields of corn, for instance, you'd have a bunch of different species uh, working together. And we've seen that at Common Ground and at NTPG here, where people are growing these kind of food forests. Can you walk us through what a food forest looks like and um, how people could potentially work on developing that kind of a concept in their own gardens?
1: So. Again, not my area of expertise, but I will tell you what I know. If you want to learn more about this, I highly recommend you go follow my partner on Instagram. His at is at the flower fiend. He is a, a forest, food forest, agriculture expert. That's what he went to school for. But essentially, it's the most sustainable way to grow food. And in addition to being able to grow food and like a big mix of different plants and and produce and stuff, you are sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. So you're helping reverse the effects of climate change. You're making money or they're like, the one here is not making money. They're actually donating all of their food, which is a really amazing thing too. They're able to donate thousands of pounds a month, but it's, it's really just growing things. You're mimicking nature. It's a lot like permaculture. Again, I'm really not an expert on food forests. I just fully support
0: the idea of them. Well, I saw, um, for instance, at Common Ground, which is a incubator agricultural project here in Kauai. Just this week, we were over there visiting them, and it is very interesting. Like, so they would kind of do a row, or they would do, you know, I know at the NDPG, there's some number of acres that have been cultivated over quite a long time, and. In the case of like the common ground food forest, they've just started that food forest within the last six months. And they started off with pineapples and with cabbages and with broccoli, but they're all kind of interspersed with each other. And there's a kind of master plan of timing by which they're first growing some level of, so to speak, crops. But then they've also planted in ulu trees, which are breadfruit and then heart of palm. And these are more like multi-year projects. And so as the trees start to grow, they become taller. There are other plants that in, in a shorter period of time would produce some element of food and then break down. And they provide the nourishment and the mulch and the fertilization for these other larger projects. And then even within that, after they get a few feet of height with the trees, they start to do things like coffee that would then sort of grow under the shade. And so yeah. the same piece of land that moves from pineapple and broccoli and cabbage to coffee and breadfruit and palm. And you know, that kind of happens over time. And so I suppose, are there, are there methods for being able to think about that in a normal garden or is that something that maybe can most easily happen in places that are very fertile, like Kauai?
1: Oh, I think about this all the time, how, You could adapt a food forest to any type of environment you live in, you just want to mimic the nature around you. So say you live somewhere where it freezes in the winter and it snows, grow a mixture of hardy winter vegetables and then in the spring you plant your spring vegetables and grow those amongst fruit trees that need a freezing winter to produce like stone fruits, persimmons. You just want to create a garden or a food forest where you you have multiple harvesting seasons a year, and you're intermixing hardwood trees with shrubs, with ground covers, just covering all your layers, and having a mix of harvest seasons. So you're getting food all year round. So it's and, totally adaptable.
0: And it seems like this approach is not only more sustainable; it's carbon fixing, and and in a way, you know, climate change reversing. But it also sounds a lot more fun, right? Because it makes the the land almost renew itself because when one crop is fading away, the, the refuse or the leaves and other things of that are then fertilizing the next coming thing. So it really is like an annual cycle that lasts all year long.
1: Yeah, definitely. And not only is it more fun, but I think it's more appealing. Wouldn't you rather, go out into your backyard and sit in your own little beautiful magic secret forest that you created that feeds you all year round, then go out into your little garden beds that are empty half the year. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's a really fun idea for people to do at home.
0: Yeah, great. So Charlie, you've been with the NTPG for quite a long time now working on these ferns. How do you see the future of your work evolving? Do you think that technology, you know, one of the things we love to talk about on this podcast is the impact of technology on the near future? And as we get into, and I know that you're not like a genetic scientist or anything like that, but as we get into the ability to either replicate or clone different things, as well as the ability to even adapt the DNA of plants and look at different ways to protect these species. I'm curious, like, how would you think about the role of technology in helping you do your work to save these rare and exotic plants?
1: So that's something I've thought a lot, especially during COVID about. Um, So many people right now are working remotely from home. and, And my job is really one that is impossible to do remotely from home right now. And if I wasn't here, the stuff in the lab would die because i hand water everything i have to you know examine the leaves look under the microscope for algae problems going on or is there a nematode issue in a tray like there's just a plethora of things that i have to oversee with my own eyes and i've been thinking and i know that they have this stuff like in the cannabis production and um and probably in food production where more of it could be automated and ran digitally, like if everything could be, you know, set up so that I can check in on my plants from home from a remote location. And, and there's a camera on the underside of the leaf and on the above and maybe a way to look at the root system or, you know, a way to pull a plant and put it under a microscope all from a remote location yeah. and apply a pesticide or. Um, do an extra watering or a misting or, or pull a plant out to dry out in an area. Like, it would be so cool. It would help a lot with conservation efforts because I work for a non-profit. Uh, people cost money. <laughs> so it'd be really cool. I think that we could really expand conservation efforts if more automation and technology was adopted into the
0: process. And theoretically, do you see a world coming where genetic manipulation of plants might be able to help save species or even potentially bring back a species like if that last orchid before it's fully gone is there any way that that could be saved so that its dna could be potentially resurrected in the future are you guys thinking about those sorts of things
1: so with that orchid in particular it's platinthera Holochilla, i think there's seeds in storage. We have a seed bank here. We're one of the big seed banks in the world. And we also have a spore bank or one of the eight spore banks on earth. So we get to store seeds and spores in a state-of-the-art facility to keep them around in case those species do go extinct. So we have the genetics saved. For the platanthera holochila. it actually was propagated successfully once, I believe, at the University of Chicago by a man there who studied this genus in particular of orchids. And the problem was is that he couldn't identify the correct mycorrhizal relationship and he had to substitute one of his own so it was a mycorrhizal relationship that worked with the orchid seeds and he was able to successfully grow them but he went out planting those propagated orchids, I think it was less than 20 plants, he was introducing a foreign mycorrhizal to that ecosystem. And, and we don't know the effects of that. And that's why we have not continued to propagate that orchid here. I wasn't on that project. This is just things I've learned from coworkers and stuff. But so there's just like a million things to think about. <laughs> like, are you introducing a foreign mycorrhizal issue or how could that affect the other plants in the area? But I think that through conservation efforts like saving seeds and saving spores in the future with more knowledge, maybe there is a way we can bring these species back.
0: So I think many of our listeners and people that we know would look to the work you're doing, the woman saving Jurassic Park, and say, wow, there must be some way to help. I know the NTPG, as you said, is a nonprofit. Can you tell us how people can support the work that you're doing or the work that the NTBG is doing?
1: Happily, if you want to support the NTBG, just go to ntb.org. You can sign up to volunteer at one of our four gardens. We have four gardens? Yes, the two here on Kauai, the one on Maui, and we have one in Florida, the Kampong. You can sign up to volunteer um, at some of those gardens. Volunteer stuff might be restricted right now due to COVID, but you can also sign up to become a member or just donate once. There's different levels of membership and you get a lot of benefits with becoming a member and supporting the nonprofit. But also just, you know, donate your money to other organizations as well that help protect native species like the IUCN Red List organization. And, and also go out and plant native plants where you live. Look, Contact the Native Plant Society in your area and ask, hey, how can I help?
0: I think that last one is really important because if we had everybody out there looking and understanding the native plants and their ecosystem and their area, and then doing a little bit of work, whether you propagate some fern in a, in a Tupperware dish in your kitchen, or you actually get out there and do a food forest in your backyard, those are the things that we need to be all doing to help to solve the issues, right? Because if we had a hundred people or a thousand people out there trying to grow these native plants, it might actually make a big difference in terms of these conservation efforts. Thank you, Charlie. What a fascinating concept. Is there anything that you can leave us with? A little plant story um, from some of your adventures out in the wild?
1: A little plant story. Well, I'll just tell you something cool I got to do the other day at work that really filled me with joy. We can make it my Hooray for January. I got to partner my coworkers here at the NTBG. We got to go out with another organization, KRCP here in Kauai and we hiked out into the mountains and we hiked out a bunch of native plants that we had grown here at my nursery. um, Some of which were this native endemic palm to the island of Kauai called Prechardia Minor. And I got to plant them in the ground way out in the forest. And hopefully those little trees that we planted will outlive me, will outlive my grandchildren, and hopefully they'll make more baby palms. And it just, it was a really cool experience to get to finish something full circle, not just grow the plant, but put it where it belongs.
0: What a what an inspiring idea and maybe a way for all of us to have legacy, right? So Charlie, thank you for joining us and taking time out of your fern lab to talk with the Chronicles. For those of you who want to plant a, a a plant check out charlie on instagram what's your instagram
1: it's at charlie hotchkiss and i spell charlie c-h-a-r-l-y and hotchkiss is just as it sound it's hot h-o-t-c-h-k-i-s-s
0: and then graham your partner is the flower fiend f-i-e-n-d their instagram is filled with lots of beautiful plants and rare plants on a on a regular basis so check those guys out on instagram always we're excited to have these conversations that kind of merge conservation climate technology the near future ai this is the chronicles discussion from hub culture i'm stan Stoniker. you can always like and subscribe and follow us soundcloud itunes or wherever you get your podcasts signing off for now thank you charlie have fun in the fern lab
1: thank you stan it was really fun talking to you